All right. Well, as always, good morning. Great to see you and be with you, as always. If you were with us last week, uh, we began looking at John chapter 11 together and started to work through what many consider to be uh, the greatest story and greatest miracle in the Bible outside of Jesus' own personal resurrection. And that is uh, the resurrection of Jesus' friend, whose name was Lazarus. Uh, Throughout John's gospel, uh, we know that every single story that's placed in this gospel is intentional. And it's all pointing us towards the same reality, which is that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Savior, that he is God. And we see everywhere in in John that Jesus' not just his words, but actually his works are are proof of that, that his works testified that he was sent from the Father and that he and the Father are truly one. Uh, Jesus did so much, so much while he was here on, on the earth. In fact, at the end of John's gospel, we'll get to this in May, <laughs> but we're, we're told that all of the books in the entire world couldn't contain everything that Jesus did. But of all the things he did, all the miracles, none is more powerful, none is more compelling, and none is more memorable than this raising of a man named Lazarus. So let's jump back into the story. And like I said last week, uh, my hope is that through this miracle, um, all of us would, first of all, truly see who Jesus is, that our faith would increase, and that we would know that anything is possible with our great God. That's our goal today, all right? So if you weren't here with us last week, let me catch you up. When we left off last week, we were in the town of Bethany. Jesus, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, was in another city. And, And while he was there doing ministry, teaching people, he learns that his dear friend Lazarus was sick, very sick, um, on the brink of death. Well, after that, there's a bit of controversy. Uh, We know Jesus operates on his own time. He sees things that we don't see. And so he makes, again, the controversial decision to not go to Bethany to help Lazarus right away, but rather to stay where he was and to keep the disciples with him for two days. After two days goes by, Jesus and the disciples, they finally leave. They're headed to Judea, to Jerusalem, to Bethany. But by the time that Jesus and his disciples arrive to Bethany, where Mary and Martha were, where Lazarus was laying, by the time Jesus gets there, we are told in the text that Lazarus has been dead or that he had been put in the tomb for four days now. It's a big problem. And so what happens? Well, Jesus arrives on the scene. Uh, Martha, Lazarus' sister, runs out to him as fast as she can. She falls before him, pours out her heart in front of him. She gave Jesus all of her disappointment, her hurt and her pain. Lord, if you had only been here sooner, this wouldn't have happened. She's hurt that he didn't show up sooner. She's hurt that he didn't heal. She's hurt that 
he didn't help. But even then, even in that moment, we, so, we see from Martha that she still confesses great faith. She says to Jesus, even in the midst of all of that, she says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's where we left off last week. So now we pick up the story in verse 28. Okay, this is John chapter 11 in your Bibles, starting in verse 28. Here's what we read. We've got a large little chunk of text in front of us. When she had said this, that's Martha, what she just said, I believe you're the Christ, Son of God, coming into the world. She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And, and when she heard it, she rose, that's Mary, rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb of Lazarus to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? that Mary repeats the exact same phrase that her sister Martha had said to Jesus just minutes prior to this. Jesus, if you had come sooner, my brother would not have died. In other words, we know that you would have helped. We know that you would have healed him if you were here. Uh, clearly, uh, the sisters had talked about this before. <laughs> They believe Jesus could have saved their brother. But again, now he's been dead. He's been lying in the tomb for four days, which means in that culture, four days, there's no more hope. All that's left is sadness. All that's left for them is mourning. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary, and the Jews, the people who had come with her, also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. By the way, um, I hope as we navigate our way through the story together and as we, we read this together, that you can do your best to try to picture the scenes here in your mind. Uh, the, the sister Mary now, maybe Martha's there too, we're not told, but, but Mary is, is weeping. The Jewish people around her, family and friends, maybe people of the village, they're crying too. They're, they're exhausted. They're feeling defeated. There's deep mourning taking place here. Genuine sadness at the loss of their brother, their friend, Lazarus. And as we read this story, we have to, it's so important to the text that we, we understand and keep in mind that Jesus knows exactly what he is about to do. He's told the disciples what he's going to do. He's told Martha what he's going to do even though nobody understood. He is going to ra raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that. But even knowing that, look at his reaction here in the text. When Jesus saw everyone weeping, he was deeply moved. It literally means, if you looked at the original language, 
It literally means that he was troubled in his spirit. It's extremely strong and convicting language here. In other words, Jesus is in agony because Lazarus is also his friend. That's the reality. But there's much more to this as well on a bigger scale. You see, we know again, Jesus sees far more than what's right in front of him. He sees well beyond what you and I are capable of seeing. See, Jesus sees death as the result of sin. He sees the reality that everyone will die, that every family is going to have a loss, including us. We, we will all experience brokenness in this world, loss in this world. This is what sin has done, not just to this family, Lazarus's family, not just to the city in Bethlehem, uh, in Bethany, not just to this, in this time period in the first century, but all throughout human history, this is the result of sin. And so there is a, a heavy weight here for Jesus. It's emotional. And so Jesus allows himself to feel what the people feel. And by the way, I, I believe this is so worth being mentioned. It might, it's, it's worth maybe even you writing this down in, your, in the margins of your Bible. I actually came across this really recently, and it really opened my eyes to this particular text. But we have to understand that in, in Greek culture, it's interesting because they would write down descripting words for their gods. And, and it would depend on what the god was or did, how they would describe that god. But there was one word that collectively described all of the gods in Greek, and that is the word apatheia. It's in English where we get the word apathetic. Interesting. They described all of their gods as apathetic. And, and, and what that meant for them, what they believed literally is that in Greek mythology, that their Greek gods had no ability actually to feel pain and no ability to feel emotion, no ability to, to care genuinely, truly for us. And so understand what John is trying to tell us here when he writes this in his gospel. He's telling us that our God is not like the gods of that day. Jesus felt pain. Jesus felt emotion. Jesus chose to care. Jesus is near to the brokenhearted and the grieving. And we see that so clearly on display right here in the text. Jesus says, he's grieved. He says, where have you put the body? The people then say, come and see. And then we get the famous verse, Jesus wept. You have been told, those of you whose first language is English, probably, and you've heard this preached, you've been told that this is the shortest verse in the Bible. That is true and not true at the same time. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible, not the shortest verse in the Bible. That's a side note. Look it up what it is, right? That's your homework. But in English, yes, Jesus wept is the shortest, okay? Jesus wept. And within those two words, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of heart, there's a lot of meaning, there's a lot of power. This is not just small tears. This is not meant to be seen as like a soft sob or, or weep. Actually, how this reads, Jesus wept, this is a, literally an outburst. 
It's wailing. This is the man of sorrows who is acquainted with our grief, as the prophet Isaiah says. In other words, we're meant to feel here and and see that literally Jesus now, he cannot contain himself. He's almost, he's in control as God, he's out of control as a man. The pain of sin and death is just too much in this moment for him to bear. And you know, I, I think it's appropriate for me to say right here, I actually added this last night, teaching, uh, coming, approaching this text, that, that I think we need to understand that, that if Jesus, the Son of God, wept, that for us, it's important for us to know that there is no shame in our tears. And what that means, let me tell you something pastorally here, what that means is you can cry here at Freedom Village, okay? We give you permission. Um, if you know me or know me for any amount of time, you know I do that a lot anyway, okay? So you have permission. But in all seriousness, um, I want you to know that actually, very, very real, it's a real, real thing, your tears actually, your, your cries are, are precious before the Lord. Jesus wept. And by the way, you know what? Abraham wept. Jacob wept. David wept. Jonathan wept. And go on and on and on. Jeremiah, Ezekiel wept, we're told in the scriptures. So Jesus is crying deeply here, overwhelmed. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. There's this almost, there's almost a sense of awe here now. The great teacher, the miracle worker, the one who people are calling the Messiah, he, he truly loved Lazarus, they say. This was his brother, spiritually. <laughs> and that's true, right? We, we, we talked about this last week, that, that Jesus loved him on a human level as, as deep as he could, as a brother, as a friend. But at the same time, he also loved him on the deepest level there is, and that is he loved him as God. But can I also say this, uh, just in, in regards to what this tells me and what I think it should tell us about our life before the Lord? Uh, listen, Understand that if the crowd here present with Jesus this day looked at Jesus' tears, saw him crying, and said about him, wow, look at how much Jesus, Jesus loved Lazarus. Oh my goodness, look at him. How much he cared for him. I think I can, I can rightfully say with great confidence to all of us that Jesus has done much more for you and I than just weep. You know, Jesus died for you. He went to the cross for you. He took your shame. He, he, he bore your guilt. He did so much more than just wail and, and weep. And so if back then they said, look at how much Jesus loved Lazarus because of his weeping, what should we say about how Jesus feels about us? Now, we should be able to say, oh my goodness, be overwhelmed in awe. We should be able to say, Look how much Jesus loves us. Amen? We can be assured that Jesus loves us today. So there are some who are amazed at Jesus' love for Lazarus. We're told that. We're told then that others are still confused at, at why he didn't come and heal. 
Like if he loved him so much, if he's wailing, why didn't he just come and heal him? Right? They didn't understand God's divine timing, his bigger plan. And then the text says, then Jesus, interesting, deeply moved again. He hears the questioning. He hears the words about his love for Lazarus, deeply moved again, comes to the tomb. And then we're told it was a cave and a stone lay against it. We see Jesus is moved again in his spirit. By the way, that word, deeply moved again, it's a different word in Greek for deeply moved. This is more like he let out a groan or a gasp. It's literally the word um, that's used when a horse um, snorts loudly in agony. Jesus like snorted, right? That's literally what it says. There, there's, there's agony, he's groaning, he, he, like the, a verbal agony is being displayed. The idea here is that there's this, there's this internal agony and it's now being released verbally, right? it's strong. He's deeply troubled at the reality of death. Our savior, he comes to Lazarus's tomb now. And then we're given a short description of the tomb. A little detail. And this was a typical tomb in this part of the world. We're told that Lazarus is buried in a cave. Uh, if you would go into this cave, not like super deep, but just maybe the size of the stage. If you go to Israel, you can still go into these today. Um, I was in one one time. It's kind of an interesting place. You kind of come in and usually there's actually a place that's carved out for you to sit, visitors, to sit and kneel and cry or weep or whatever you're going to do. And then the section, typically it's on the right-hand side, there'd be almost tiers that looked like bunk beds where bodies would then be laid there in this cave, in this structure. So we're told that Lazarus is in one of those. And not only that, but we're told that a large circular stone is rolled in front of that opening of the cave to seal the tomb. That's what we have here. And then at that, Jesus says this, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. If you read the King James Version, it says, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> I'm not kidding, it says that. For he has been dead for four days. Lazarus stinketh. Can't go in there. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I think sometimes, I think sometimes when you and I are really familiar with the Bible, we forget how strange some things are in the Bible. I'm sure the majority of us here, uh, not wanting to go, but have been to a funeral before. I'm sure the vast majority of us have been to a funeral. Have you ever, um, have you ever been to a funeral where the pastor uh, maybe says some, some words and then he says, all right, everyone, it's uh, time to, to bring the coffin in and we're going to open it up okay. for everyone. No way, right? I mean, if you were the family member, you'd be like, like this guy's insane, right? What's your problem? That would be absurd. This is what Jesus has just done. And so we see Martha is a little troubled, more than that, puzzled, confused by what Jesus has just asked them to do. She's like, Jesus, I know you are the resurrection and the life. I believe you're the Messiah. I confess that. But this is going a bit too far, don't you think? And again, 
I think if we were in her position, we might react the exact same way. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem, though. You see, Martha, in this moment, she has her thoughts and her mind on the corpse rather than the Christ. It's an issue for her. She has her heart on the corpse rather than the Christ. That's the problem. She's, she's worried about the body. She's worried about the shame that it will bring him, but also the family, for the body to be exposed, because like, it, it smells. It, it wouldn't look good, like appear good. So she's got her eyes on the corpse, the circumstance, the situation in front of her rather than the Christ. And so what does Jesus say to her? He says, have you forgotten what I promised you? He's essentially saying, you already told me that you believed in me. I'm about to show you the glory of God. That's what Jesus is really saying here. We're so far removed from this, and it's not really a Western culture thing. And so we have to think just for a second, pause about what Jesus just said here and understand the significance of what he just said in regards to showing him, showing the crowd, showing her the glory of God. Jesus is like, I'm about to reveal to you the excellencies of the creator, is what he's saying. I'm about to manifest before you the very nature of God. In other words, this is an incredible opportunity, but more than that, this is an invitation here to see what what very few had seen before. I'm going to show you the glory. By the way, that's the exact same word that's used of the glory of God that was present with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's, it's the same glory that was revealed to the, to the Israelites in the wilderness with the pillar of cloud of fire and, and the pillar of cloud uh, uh, at night that was, that was cloud of fire, cloud of, uh, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, excuse me. It's the same glory that came down and entered into the Holy of Holies to be present with the people. And now in the New Testament, God's glory has come down once again, we're told, in a body, in a person, his name, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to put his glory on display here, but not as a shining light this time, not as a pillar of cloud, as it's been seen before. This time, he says, you're going to see God's glory as life itself the visible display of God's invisible power and authority. The fullness of who God is is about to be displayed in this amazing miracle Jesus is about to perform. You say you believe, Martha. Get your eyes off the corpse in the tomb. Put your eyes on me. Set your heart on the Lord. And you know, you know, as I was, I was thinking about this, I... I realize that, that you and I often fail to, but we need to live in this kind of expectancy as well, living in the glory of God. And that doesn't mean that we are necessarily looking for miracles, though they can certainly happen and do happen all throughout our world today. What I mean by that is when you really believe in Jesus, when you truly see him and understand who he is for who he is, you will see him display his glory throughout all of life and your own life. You will. I'm telling you, all right, I live personally, I live in the middle of God's glory being displayed all the time. His amazing providence and his incomprehensible provision surround me each and every single day. 
Every day of my life, his purposes and his will are on display for me, all around me. And so it is right and true for me to say that my whole life, for those of us who are in Christ, your whole life is a display of the glory of God. Because I know that he's in every single one of my circumstances. He is present with me in every single situation that I walk through. I just have to have the eyes of faith to see it. God's glory is always on display in and through the lives of his people. And that's what he's asking Martha to do right here and to see right here. See my glory on display. Open your eyes, Martha. See me and believe. And so what's the response? What do they do? Thankfully, they listen to Jesus. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. There are two things that I want us to notice here. First of all, again, I've said this before, I think twice, I'm going to say it again. We need to keep in mind once again what Jesus is about to do. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And if Jesus can do that, if he can perform that miracle, if he has that type of power and authority, the question is, why couldn't he, why didn't he just remove the stone as well? I was thinking about it, like why didn't Jesus, because he could have, why didn't he just like Jedi mind that stone, right? If I was Jesus, that would have happened, right? Just put my hand out and lift it up and, right? Toss it aside. You're going to see my glory on display, right? Maybe the hood comes off. You know, you get the picture. Star Wars nerds, right? But I want us to see this. I want us to grab hold of this now. What's happening here, actually, is that Jesus refuses to do what the people were able to do themselves. It was in their power to move the stone, to roll it away. And so he says, move the stone. It was not within their power to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus was going to do what only he could do. You see that here. We're going to see something so similar in a moment, and then I'll make a bigger point. But just keep in mind that Jesus here asks the crowd to do what they are able to do. He allows them to participate in the coming miracle. But then the second thing I want you to notice is how Jesus prays here. And specifically, I want you to see that Jesus isn't actually asking the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's not asking for permission either. No, Jesus is praying that everyone there would see, understand, and believe, right? And so even before the miracle takes place, I want us to understand that Jesus is about to do this miracle through his power and his authority. It's going to be done through the power of his word. Yes, yes, he will do this within the Father's will, but he did not pray for God the Father to do it. He wants the credit. He deserves the credit. And he wants the crowd to know who's going to get the credit. And so, with that now in your mind, this whole scene, you can picture it, the crying, 
the wailing and weeping, Jesus' words here. They're at the tomb. The stone is rolled away. He prays. Let them see. Let them believe who I am. Now you're ready for verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. We see here that Jesus is not shy. (laughs) This isn't done in secret. It wasn't supposed to be. This is loud so that everyone around can hear. And, And it's clear, again, that no one, no one else can get the credit for what's about to happen. Jesus cried out. Literally, it says that that he cries out in a powerful voice. That's what it says in the original language. He yells, shouts, right? Can you imagine as he does that, you're standing there, like how much your heart would be beating and pounding, right? Jesus, come out. They don't expect it. Lazarus, get up, come out. Hearts pounding, people trying to peer into the dark tomb, What in the world is going to happen? Verse 44, the man who died. I don't even say his name because this isn't about Lazarus, about Jesus. (laughs) The man who died, that's Lazarus, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to the crowd, unbind him and let him go. As I was studying this text uh, the last couple weeks, I was just shocked how matter-of-fact this is. So simple, so straightforward what just took place. And, but then I thought, you know, this is God we're talking about here. For Jesus, resurrection from the dead is easy. It reads that way here. And so Lazarus does what he is commanded to do. He comes out, and he's all wrapped up in his burial clothes. Can you, can you see it with me? I don't know if each leg is individually wrapped, so he's like teetering out, maybe. But more likely, they buried him in the Jewish traditional way, which means that both legs are wrapped together, which means, kind of ironically, Lazarus is hopping out of the grave. It's it's likely. I don't know how he got himself out of there. But he listened to the Lord. He rolled himself, I don't know. But he gets himself out. It's incredible. And when he comes out and reveals himself, Jesus says, untie him. Loosen him. Now, we're not told among the crowd, this large crowd, who does that. But understand that like Jesus asking the people, to roll the stone away. There's a similarity here, and I want to make this point, that Jesus chose to use people to do what they were able to do while he does what only he can do. To the crowd, to the people, you guys roll the stone away. You unwrap the man. I'll bring him back to life. You know, Jesus has a habit of doing this kind of thing, doesn't he? You see this in John's gospel. Go through it again and you'll see this, but I'll give you one example. You remember in John 6, feeding of the 5,000, which is probably more likely like 25, 30,000 people, including women and children. There's no food for everyone to eat. So what does he do? He prays. Father, thank you for the food. Kind of similar, right? Thank you for the food. All of a sudden, there's 12 basketful 
of, of, of fish and bread when there was only very little. What happens? He creates the food out of nothing. But the disciples are given the task to pass it out. It's the same idea here. Jesus creates life, but the people work around him. And this is a picture of the work of salvation in some ways, I think. And as one pastor put it, Jesus alone can save sinners. Only he can give us new life, new spiritual life. But we, as followers of Jesus, can help unwrap the grave clothes off the new believer. As people who have been spiritually made alive by Jesus, we can come along and support people throwing off their old self and putting on Christ. See, I want us to understand it is actually, it's purposeful by John and it is meaningful that when Lazarus comes back to life, he still has his grave clothes on. Don't miss that detail. He still got the grave clothes. Why? Because Lazarus will die again physically. Unlike Jesus, which we'll see in John, when Jesus comes back to life, when he is resurrected, Jesus leaves the grave clothes in the tomb. Why? Because he didn't need them anymore. Because he would never die again. See the difference? Lazarus was resuscitated. <laughs> Jesus was resurrected. Listen, follow the connection. Once you and I receive Jesus, believe in Jesus, even after we're saved, been given new life, we are still living here on this earth, which means we're still fighting the flesh and we're still fighting those old, stinky clothes. And sometimes, sometimes you and I, unfortunately, we like to stay, remain in those old, smelly clothes, don't we? We go back to our old life. We tend to revert back to our old habits, our old tendencies, and sure, we are commanded to personally work to keep taking off of those garments, those old clothes, but praise God, we also have the help of others. We have the church to help us rid us, rid us of those things as well until Jesus raises us all physically and spiritually in the last day. So again, God brings the life. He brings the resuscitation, if you will. He brings resurrection, but you and I work with others to throw off the old self, to throw off those old clothes. What I would encourage you today and what I think Jesus was trying to tell them is don't live in your grave clothes anymore. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing story. Jesus looks death straight in the eye and he conquers it here. And in just a matter of days from now, most scholars believe it's 10 days later, he will go to the cross and defeat death once and for all by raising himself to life. So this here with Lazarus, I think it's appropriate to say that this is sort of an appetizer. It's a foreshadow of what's about to come. Jesus right now here in this place in Bethany proves that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. That he truly does have power over death. He literally shouts that message to the world. He told Lazarus to come out of the grave physically, and he's shouting to you and I, come to me spiritually. 
You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. You don't have to remain in the cave. You don't have to live in bondage. You no longer have to live in pain. You no longer have to walk in grief. You don't have to live your life in a state of hopelessness. You don't have to walk in depression anymore. You don't have to be burdened by the things of this world. Come out and walk in Jesus' resurrected life. Amen. Well, that takes us then to the end of the chapter. Jesus has once again told everyone clearly who he is, but more than that, he has demonstrated who he is more powerfully than he has ever done before. He has shown himself to truly be the Messiah, the, the, the Savior, Fittingly, for today, starting Advent, he showed himself to be the hope for the world. But as is typical with John, we see a few different responses to Jesus' words and works. <laughs> a few different effects of, of Lazarus' resurrection, you might say. And you know, they are so predictable, so I'm not going to spend too much time on the end here. They're so predictable because we've seen them over and over and over and over again throughout John's gospel. So this is what we are told. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. What do we see here? Some believe in Jesus. Pretty obvious. <laughs> they see this astounding miracle that just took place right in front of their eyes. And they say, all right, I get it. I've seen enough. I might have had some doubts before, but now I'm in. I heard what Jesus said. I just literally watched a dead man come out of his tomb. So now I believe that Jesus really is the Christ. There's that group, we're told. But then there are others who go to the Pharisees to report what Jesus had done. And by the way, that's not a positive thing. This is not like a testimony you wouldn't believe what Jesus has done. No, no, this is like tattletaling. Okay, literally. They tell on Jesus. They are on his side, in other words. They're on the side of the religious leaders of Israel. And what's the response of the leaders? This is, um, it's chilling. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. That's the Sanhedrin. It's the most powerful 70 men in Israel. All of them are together. And this is what they say. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you notice the irony here of what they are saying? Maybe for the very first time, they essentially admit that Jesus has done legit signs and miracles, that he has done things that only the Messiah and God could do. Underlining in their words there, that is there. He's performed many signs, many miracles. It's too much. But they are so corrupt, so twisted, that they continue to harden their hearts. And instead of joining in with those who believe and running out to Bethany, they say, we need to stop this. Otherwise, what's going to happen? We are going to lose our position. You see that? We're going to lose our status. They are so concerned with their own authority, 
so concerned with their own power, so worried, they say, that we're going to lose everything, quote unquote, that they miss their king. They miss the one who can truly give them everything. Do you see not, how, how, how not only how ironic this situation is, but how sad it is? These individuals, these men, they knew a lot of facts about Jesus, but their hearts would not go to a place of surrender to Jesus. It wouldn't go there. And God forbid that that should ever be any one of us here. God forbid that anyone in this room here today, any of those listening online, would say, yeah, I get the facts about Jesus. Yeah, I understand he did this and that. Maybe he really even did raise a man from the dead, but I will not surrender my life to him. God forbid. Well, then we'll close here. The religious leaders are talking through this, and then the voice of all voices, the high priest of Israel, the top of the food chain, if you will, speaks up. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Imagine, this is the Sanhedrin, the most powerful group of people in Israel. He looks at them all and he says, he's the 71st person, by the way. He's above them. He says to these well-educated, most respected men in all of Israel, says to them, you all know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. John tells us right after this, by the way, that Caiaphas has no idea what he just said. Because he just predicted, actually, prophesied, if you will, that Jesus would die for the world. Caiaphas's whole speech here is centered on this political nonsense. And he's like, either, what he's essentially saying is, either Jesus is going to die, or the whole nation of Israel is going to collapse around us and before us. What choice do we have? We need to kill him. That's what he's saying here. And while he's all caught up in that speech, this self-exalting, brutal, sly, corrupt man gives a clear statement on the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He has no idea what he's saying or what he's just said, but God used him to speak truth. He used a donkey in the Old Testament. There's another word. He uses a high priest here, which tells us again that there are clearly no limits to what God can do. Caiaphas spent one thing but God meant something different. From this day forward, we're told that Jesus' death is being strategically and carefully planned by the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. And we are very close to the end. Passover is coming. Their plan is being put in place. They have told everyone in Jerusalem, if you see Jesus come in for Passover, Tell us, let us know, arrest them. Their plan is put in place, but what they don't know and what they don't see is that God's plan had already been put in place. Jesus will go to Jerusalem for Passover, and he will arrive there as the sinless, spotless lamb. 
He will arrive there to lay down his life as a living sacrifice for the sins of the world, just as Caiaphas said. The one who said that he is the resurrection and the life, who raised Lazarus from the dead, will lose his life for our sake, only to raise it up again. Chapter 11 of John's Gospel shouts to us that hope is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. It shouts to us that there is life beyond this life, that there is life beyond the grave. And it shouts to us that Jesus is the only way to find that life. The question for us today is, do you believe? Do you believe? And for those of us who who already believe, here's my encouragement. Continue to, to strive towards throwing off those old burial clothes. Hebrews 12 tells us to to lay aside, to to take off literally every weight and sin that tends to cling so closely to us as followers of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul encourages us in Ephesians 4 that for those of us who know the gospel, he says, for those of us who believe the gospel, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and here it is, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus has called each and every one of us out of the grave. He has called us out of sin. He has called us out of darkness. So let's commit ourselves to walking in the light. Let's commit ourselves to working with others who can help us put off the old self, the former way of living, and to put on the new clothes, to put on Christ, to put on the new self. Jesus has shouted, he has shouted to each and every one of us, come out, come and walk with me. Let's obey his call. Amen? Let me pray for you as we transition into a time of communion.